Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in, in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Well, I hope you're doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's always a joy to be with y'all and getting the privilege of preaching God's word. In the event that you didn't catch Christina, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 5 through 12 this afternoon. While you do that, I got just two updates for you. The first one is if you are new, uh, man, we'd love the opportunity to pray for you or the opportunity to take you out to lunch or dinner. Therefore, there are these connect cards in the foyer. Fill one out. I would encourage you to, to fill one out. Uh, and one of us will get back with you on our, from our staff team uh, and hopefully get to hang out with you. The second thing for you is just an overview as you're making your way to 2 Thessalonians. Last week, we started this new series in this letter to the, or the second letter to the Thessalonians. We were in 1 Thessalonians for a couple of months, and one of the things that we saw there was the Apostle Paul writing to this young church plant, and he was writing to them to encourage them with significant comfort. And as we have made a transition into 2 Thessalonians, what we're going to see over the next coming weeks is the Apostle Paul does the same thing. He encourages this same church, but now he encourages them by way of correction. And so you're going to see some shift in his tone uh, when it comes to 2 Thessalonians. Other than that, that's what I got for you. Hope that gives you a broad overview of, of kind of where we're headed with this great letter. Let me pray for our time, and then we're going to dig into the text this morning, or this afternoon, I'm sorry. <clears throat> God, we are thankful to you because of Jesus. Therefore, this afternoon, may we be moved by your Holy Spirit at work within us. God, may we be convicted by your word, um, and, and so that we would seek change wherever it is you're calling us to change. God, would be, be humbled by your grace that abounds over us, in us, and through us. God, may we, as the text reads, may we marvel at Jesus this afternoon. We ask all this in his name. Amen. 
So over the last few weeks, uh, my sweet wife has been working on a project outside of our house, uh, kind of building an additional seating area uh, to allow for more chairs on our deck, but at the same time to further conversations when we have friends and family over at our house. And throughout this time, my son, my mother-in-law, and, and myself, we've been helping Rebecca. And so you can kind of tell who's leading this mass project. So Rebecca has been leading this mass project. And so we've been helping in a variety of ways from shoveling lots of dirt, lifting cement tiles, and even replanting some trees. The last few weeks have been both fruitful and frustrating. They have been very fruitful because we've got a lot of work done, we've learned more about our house, and it's kind of fulfilling work, right? But at the same time, we've goofed around, we've done a, a, a ton of different projects together, and so it's been very rewarding. But at the same time, it's been very frustrating because the weather hasn't exactly complied, uh, and it's not just because of the rain. Sometimes it's muggy and humid and hot, and sometimes it's all three of those things happening at the same time. Uh, at the same time, we've run into hiccups. We've run into issues where we needed to figure out solutions to certain problems. We've gotten frustrated because the work is hard. We've gotten frustrated at one another because, uh, at least for me, I, I don't know a lot about home improvement. So I'm just, you just point me where to go, and sometimes that doesn't always work out. But nevertheless, it has been fruitful and it has been frustrating. But what has kept us going, what has continued our our motivation has been the vision of what this seating area will be. That has been what has kept us going. In our minds, we keep thinking, man, this is going to be a wonderful place uh, for our friends from our community group to sit out here and have meaningful conversation. This is going to be a great place to rest and sit and just enjoy those valley sunsets. This is going to be a sweet spot here in our house. And so that's the thing that keeps on uh, giving us motivation. And it is the future of this vision that makes the present worth it. In our text this afternoon, the Apostle Paul is going to do something similar by unraveling the vision and promise of our future glory and how it shapes the present grace you and I live in today. He's going to do this in a number of ways, but what we're going to see is that Paul is going to get very real with the Thessalonians and us about two main themes. He's going to talk to us about the vindication for the saints and vengeance for the ones who do not know God. It is a text that is filled with a cocktail of realities from justice to judgment or justice and judgment from grace and condemnation. It is a text that will speak to our very own soul because it forces us to confront the evil around us and the evil within us apart from God's grace. In all of this, Paul will close with a prayer for holiness in order to remind us that this future is coming. Therefore, the present is worth it. The present matters. Not only will all things be brought to light, but the fruit and frustration of today matters. So let's dig into our text. We're going to begin in verse 5. Here's what the apostle writes. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is an ongoing statement from what he mentioned, uh, what we looked at last week in verse 4. So when Paul says this, what he's talking about is their perseverance, their steadfastness under persecution and affliction. If you have your Bibles open, if you go back to verse 4 just for a second, he says, we boast about you to the churches of God about your perseverance or your steadfastness in all your persecution." So when we fast forward to verse five and we see Paul say, this is evidence, this is their perseverance, under their perseverance, their steadfastness under affliction, under persecution. And we examined this last week. Paul has been commending them for remaining steadfast in all that they are experiencing. They are experiencing real, true persecution. This church has undergone significant suffering. Friends and family members have been killed. They have been socially rejected and experienced violence at the hands of their community. Last week, we noted that as Americans, for the most part, we don't really experience serious, real persecution. But we do, however, experience affliction and pain doesn't mean that just because we're not persecuted like the first century church or many of our brothers and sisters across the globe that your affliction, that your pain doesn't matter. It does. It does. It also means that it's not random. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, one of the things that Paul tells them is this, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Just before that, he writes, no one be moved by these afflictions. And so in the first letter, he's urging the Thessalonians, hey, make sure that your foundation isn't shaken when affliction, when suffering, when persecution comes. This is what will happen. Similarly, the Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So not only is persecution or affliction or pain, it's not random, it is certainly purposeful, but in addition to that, once more, Paul is commending them because they are remaining steadfast. They are under the pressure of perseverance and are holding fast to their faith. Paul says this is evidence. Evidence of what? It is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, Paul is saying this, what you are undergoing, what hardship, suffering, pain, affliction, uh, persecution, what you are undergoing right now, this is proof of what God will do in the future where he will judge the wicked. Paul has been commending them because what they're experiencing couldn't be handled apart from God's grace in their life. That's how they're able to remain steadfast in the present. And so Paul adds, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. The way he uses the word worth or worthy isn't the way you and I might use it today. Oftentimes when we consider the word worth or worthy, we're often referring to 
uh, merited value, right? When it comes to perhaps what's worth my time or what's worth my wages, right? We usually measure it up to some uh, type of metric, metric on performance. That's not the way he, he uses the word here. <clears throat> the way Paul uses the word is in these persecutions, in this affliction, you're being, uh, you're being made worthy. In other words, you're being made who you ought to be. You're being made ready for the kingdom. This present affliction and pain is preparing you not only for who you are meant to be, but for the coming of the kingdom. And so the reminder for you and I here is that we are worthy simply because of God's grace for us. We are worthy because it is by God's grace that we can endure such affliction and such pain. It is by God's grace that we're even able to grow under the pressure of affliction and pain. It is by God's grace that we are able to mature into who we're meant to be. Elsewhere, Paul writes that hardship or affliction produces character. To the Romans, he says this, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. See, in affliction, in pain, in persecution, we draw near to the promises of God that have been made for us through his grace, and we draw to them in a number of ways. For instance, when you're under persecution or affliction or pain, you think on the things of God way more as far as, for example, his return, right? You see the psalmist saying this, how long, O Lord, how long until you return? And maybe some of you have been there as you've waited in the lines at Starbucks, right? Maybe some of you have been there as you encounter some hardship or some difficult season or pain or sickness, and you're wondering, how long, O Lord? And so our affliction, our pain, our hardship draws us or ought to draw us closer to the promises of God for us, knowing that one day he will return, that he will gather his saints. Further, we draw closer to the promises of God by longing for the things of this world to die. Everything from sin and evil and injustice. It's not just the sin in us, it's the sin and horrible things around us. We long for that to be put down. We long for, man, we know that Jesus is in the business of restoration, so restore all things now. We draw closer to the promises of God. I know that in seasons of affliction, we're often wondering, what is God doing? I mean, is he even doing anything? For a moment, let's not forget that God has done and is doing a work. The first way is through the coming of Christ, that God entered into time, space, and history, died in our place and for our sins so that we would be reconciled to God through Jesus, so that this grace that has been poured out onto us would be the means by which we can endure affliction because there's something greater beyond this life. In addition to the coming of Jesus, we have received the promised Holy Spirit. 
Not only has our hearts been changed, but so have our desires, and the Holy Spirit's work in us is to guide us, to convict us, to change us, to lead us, to comfort us, to help us remember the words of Jesus when it just seems like we can't think of anything in the moment. It is the work of Christ uh, for us and the work of the Spirit in us that allows us and leads us to persevere, to build character, not grit, but character that is rooted in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will accomplish. I mentioned last week that in persecution and affliction, the authenticity of our faith is revealed. Our hearts are truly experienced in, or excuse me, truly exposed in affliction. What does your affliction reveal about your character, Christian? What does your affliction reveal about your character? What does your faith in this season reveal about your character? Some of you may know, but earlier this week, Tim Keller um, went to be with the Lord. He's a pastor theologian from New York. He's just been incredible uh, for the church and providing resources and sermons and books and so on. And over the last couple of days, especially as his family was with him, his son Michael uh, was uh, posting on, on Twitter what his dad was saying as he was in his final hours. This is one of the last things Tim Keller said. I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about three years ago. And so over the course of the last three years and some of the interviews that he had done, he just kept talking about how he was not only drawing closer to the promises of God, but he was also praying for healing. And he would say things like, man, I know God can do that, and he doesn't have to either. And so on his last words, his his son Michael records, Dad waited until he was alone with Mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last breath. And we take comfort in some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. That is a man whose hope is not just in Jesus, but his present reality was shaped by the future promise. Our perseverance in affliction and pain is not the result of like self-made grit but God's abundant grace for us. Hardship produces character. Affliction produces character, and it also reveals it. And so now at this point in verses six through nine, Paul moves us toward toward a little bit of tension, right? A little bit of tension when it comes to vindication and, and vengeance. Right, and so in, in verse 6, I want you to take a look at it. Paul opens up with a banger when it comes to verse 6. Here's what he says. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Into verse 7, and to grant relief to you 
who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Here's what Paul is ultimately saying. He's saying everything you're going through, everything you're going through, everything that you are enduring, it hasn't gone unnoticed. In fact, there will be a day where Jesus will vindicate his people and bring judgment on those who don't know him. He gives us two things. He says, hey, his saints, you will experience relief. And those who do not know him will experience his retribution. To the saints, they will be granted relief. In other words, justice will reign. How many times have you considered whether you're watching the news or whether you've been sinned against or you're the one causing sin, right? How many times have you wondered, man, when will things be made right? When will the good guys actually win? And there will be a day where justice will fully reign, where we will be liberated from pressure, where the pain will stop. And most significantly, the people of God will worship him fully. That is the relief that the saints receive. But he also says, I mean, look at that, look at that uh, verse six. He considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is the day of the Lord. This is judgment. This is God's judgment and affliction on those who afflict his people. Before we move on, because verses 8 and 9 are going to unpack some, some more stuff, I want you to know something that's found in verse 6. I'm going to reread just the, the first half. Since indeed God considers it just. If you've got a pencil or highlighter, circle that. I want you to know something. God is just. God is judge. So you don't have to be. When you and I try to take that role as just and judge, we make things worse every single time. You may argue that your actions were measured and calculated and even fair. But when we take that upon ourselves, in spite of those actions, our hearts grow weary and bitter. God is judge, so you don't have to be. There will be a day where he will execute retribution, where justice will reign. This is odd, but wonderfully good news for the Christian. God is judge, so you don't have to be. So let's consider verses 8 and 9. He says that the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those verses should make us feel a little uncomfortable because they're really heavy. They're heavy and terrifying. But nevertheless, we're going to approach them as best as we can. 
And so Paul tells us who's going to receive his vengeance, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Listen, on this day of judgment, we will all stand before the Lord, all of us. It will be a day where either we're held accountable for what we've done or a day of forgiveness for what we've done through the account of another. And so as we consider these texts, we need to realize that this day is what awaits those who reject and rebel against God. Check it. People don't go to hell. And in case you were wondering if that's what we're talking about, yes, verses 8 and 9 speak to what can be called the doctrine of hell. People don't go to hell because they don't believe in God. Like, whoa, what do you mean? Like, you might say that's sinful, and so we can add that to the list, sure. But that's not the reason people don't go to hell. The reason people go to hell is because they are sinners, and they deserve hell just like you and I do. But it is simply and solely by God's grace that we have escaped that wrath. Nothing done by us in our righteousness, but solely the grace of God. You and I as sinners deserve that. And the Bible is clear that those who will be judged on this day are judged because they have rejected the God who has revealed himself both through his word and his creation. As soon as we embrace this truth, and that's a really challenging sometimes, but as soon as we embrace this truth, for many we don't like it. At one point, none of us liked it. In fact, Romans 1 says that God reveals himself through creation. We see that and we intentionally, purposely reject it. We suppress the truth about God. Why? Because as soon as we embrace this truth that we don't like, it means that we recognize in our hearts that there is a creator to who you and I are responsible to and that he has authority over us. And we don't want that because it means that we are now unable to be our own God. That's why we hate it. And so it's not because... God hasn't revealed himself. He has made himself known through creation. He has made himself known through his word. This doctrine is a declaration and a reminder that the message of the gospel is both a warm invitation to come and know God through Jesus and a summoning to repentance. If we add, how can a loving God send people to hell? I don't know that that's the best question. If, at the very minimum, we can agree that we are all sinners, the better question is, how can a loving God send me to heaven? It's not that at one point we were good, great, and grand, and then we just kind of derailed. All of us were sinners, living our heart's desires, and God rescued us. 
Paul writes that those who are eternally separated from him will experience punishment. Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those who are eternally separated will experience punishment. And they're going to witness two things. The first thing that they're going to witness is the presence of God. God is omnipresent. It's not like he doesn't have the keys to hell and that's not his place of authority. God rules and reigns over all. Heaven, earth, hell. Those who experience punishment will experience the presence of God. But what makes it more frightening is the second thing. They will experience the absence of his grace. They will experience the absence of God's kindness, of his mercy. They will experience sovereign wrath. And the Bible is clear that those who are separated from him eternally aren't separated from him only for unbelief, but to quote Revelation, according to what they have done. In a moment, as we go to verses 10 and 12, we're going to look at like how we're distinct, I should say. There's one thing, church. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one that makes us distinct. We are deserving of the same condemnation, but by his grace, we have been rescued by it. The day of the Lord will be a day of vindication for the saint, relief. But it will also be a day of vengeance for the sinner. And so in verses 10 through 12, Paul moves us towards what this day will be like for the saints, for the people of God. And he says, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, again, if you're taking notes, and to be marveled, circle that word, to be marveled, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul is saying that on that day, those who belong to God, those who belong to Jesus, will experience Jesus personally and in the flesh in deeper relationship, no no kinds of distance, but in a deeper relationship, in proximity, not in distance. We will see Jesus as he is. We will not simply have relief. We will marvel at his glory. As heavy as verses 8 and 9 are, the day of the Lord is one that the people of God can look forward to. Because as the text reads, we will be gathered by the great shepherd. That we will hear his voice and he will gather us. 
we will have more closeness to Jesus than we've ever experienced and that we can ever comprehend on this side. And so here now, Paul concludes with a prayer for the Thessalonians, and he prays three things. And so again, remember, he's, he's talking about future glory and how that shapes our, our, our present grace. And so he's praying three things. And so here he goes, verse 10, excuse me, verse 11, he says, to this, to this end, we always pray for you. So the, the phrase, to this end, he's, he's referring to the perseverance that they're having, right? The, the steadfastness under the persecution they're experiencing. So to this end, we're always praying for you. So remember, this is a team of three. It's Paul, Silvanus, and, and Timothy, and they're writing to the Thessalonians. And so Paul is assuring them, man, we're, we're praying for you. And the first thing that he prays for them is for God's grace in their worth. Here's what Paul writes, that our God may make you worthy, check it, of his calling. That's the first thing. Make you worthy of his calling. Not that you have not been made worthy. In fact, the emphasis here is in that little phrase, his calling. Paul is reminding them, we are not worthy because we deserve it. But because we have been called by grace through faith. And so when he says that God's grace would be made evident in their, in their, in their calling or in their worth, for a moment, go to verse 12. He concludes all of this by saying, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus. So everything that he's about to pray, he's praying for God's grace to be made known and evident in them. So this first one is for his grace in our worth, that the Thessalonians and in turn, you and I would live in a way that is worthy of our calling. You have been called. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to God. So now we can live in a way that is worthy of our calling. There's nothing for you to earn. You already have it. You have been accepted by God through faith in Jesus. And as a result, the Spirit resides in you. And because of that, we can live in a way that is worthy of our calling. We can live in this way by His grace in us. Paul wants them and he wants us to become what we are not, for God to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, for us to receive more and more and more grace so that we would grow in our love for one another, so that we would be self-denying, so that we would steep ourselves in the word of God and in prayer, so that our character would be molded to who we ought to be, so that we would be generous, so that we would be forgiving, so that we would be repentant, and so that we would praise him. So the first thing Paul prays is for God's grace in our worth because of his calling on our life. The second thing is for God's grace in our fruit. The second half of verse 11. <clears throat> and may he fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power that even in the middle of their affliction, even in the middle of their perseverance, Paul prays that they will have been so transformed by God's grace that it continues to change their heart and actions. That they would be empowered by God in their priorities and in their purposes. He's praying that we would be empowered 
and transformed, not just in our heart, but in our actions, that we would evaluate our daily life, not with what will benefit me, but what will glorify him. That takes a completely different approach when we consider that neighbor, that friend, that cousin, that coworker that you know doesn't know Jesus, and we've said nothing. Why? Because our agenda matters more. And so Paul is saying, man, I pray that God's grace would mold you in such a way that it shapes and empowers your priorities, your decisions, your purpose. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, and I don't think this is on the slides. His name is Penn Pen Gillette. He's one of the, the magicians from, what is it, Penn and uh, whatever. Y'all know. Obviously, I don't. Anyway, and so a pen and teller. There it is, right? That's what you were saying. Okay. So anyway, there's this one video. You can find it on YouTube. There's this one video where Penn is talking about after a show, uh, he was outside and there were all these fans and they were coming up to him and he was signing autographs and taking pictures with them. And he says he noticed this one individual who's kind of standing off to the side and waiting for everybody to get their autograph and their picture. And so Penn says, after everybody did their thing, this individual came up to me and he was really nervous and his voice was really shaky. And this individual ends up sharing the gospel of Jesus with, with Penn. And so a couple of days later, Penn puts this little video on, uh, on, on, on YouTube. And here's what he, what he says. Again, I don't think this is on the slide, so I'll, I'll try not to talk as fast as I normally do. I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. In other words, share the gospel. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not worth telling them because it will make things socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And then the video concludes. And that was really profound. And so Penn is saying, if you, have, if you are certain that you can have eternal life, that there will be people who will be condemned, and you have this news that there is someone who can save them, and you don't tell them about it because it would be awkward for you, how much do you have to hate somebody? How much hate do you actually have for those people? The reason I bring this up is because throughout the, the first and second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is constantly encouraging them because they were captive or are captivated by the gospel, that it has shaped not just their church, but the community and the cities around them. And even now, he's commending them for their steadfastness in persecution. And he's saying, I want God's grace to be uh, filled in the fruit of your work. Like, even though you're in persecution, keep going. Keep telling people about Jesus. Live in a way that is visible. Uh, live in a way that honors God. Live in a way where Jesus is visible in your life. I want you empowered by grace. Not just in the transformation of your heart, but in your actions. 
Finally, Paul says that he wants God's grace for them in shared glory. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Saying that we would not only glorify God in our lives, but that God would be glorified in us. And so let's look at this practically as we're wrapping it up. How can God be glorified in our lives? Here's what I would say. God would be glorified in our lives when he is honored and visible in your life. In other words, you're living in a way by faith that people can see your adoration of Christ. Everything from your self-control to your zeal. Everything from when you share the gospel to when you keep silent. For the honor of Christ and not yourself. I think that would be one of the ways in which God is glorified in us when we honor him and he is visible in our life. When we visibly honor God with our life, empowered by his grace, we live selflessly. When we don't, and we live out even good actions with false motivations, maybe with a secret uh, for our own praise, we corrupt what we're supposed to enjoy. So you ask, well, how is he honored when we obey him? See, obedience uh, isn't just a response to our faith. Our obedience demonstrates how much we love him, not because we're oppressed by him, but because he's a good father. And what do kids want to do with their good fathers? They want to make much of dad. They want to please dad. They want to show off dad. So we obey him, not so that we would be loved, but because we have been loved by him. And as a result, we can then enjoy him. So for the people of God, we will marvel at the coming of Christ because of his grace for us and his grace through us. See, more than tensions of fruit and frustration on a home project, this, ta- this text casts frustrations and questions for me. How do we live in this world? It is so broken. My heart grows angry when I consider my own sin and the sin around me. My heart grows weary with grief when I sit with many of you and hear about your pain and your affliction. How do you live in a world that is broken and filled with the tension of fruit and frustration? What Paul is telling the Thessalonians is we live by looking back knowing first that God has loved us through Jesus, that God entered into time and space and history as the man, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that you and I cannot live and died the death that you and I deserve so that we would have redemption and eternal life. We look back at what God has done, And oftentimes, as Christians, as church, we stop there. We just look at that. Amen. If you want to be encouraged, look back at what he's done so that you're cool right now. And that's part of it. I'm not knocking that. That's true. We look back at what God has done for us through Jesus. 
and we look forward in assurance knowing that God will one day make everything right. That all things will be restored. That not only will we be able to worship him fully, but simply, and I don't mean this like dismissively, but that we will be with him. It is this future glory that shapes and encourages our present godliness. So be encouraged. Be encouraged and empowered by God's grace for you. Go and tell people about Jesus, not just so that they would escape wrath, but so that they would come and know the Redeemer. You have the best news ever. Take it to them. The day of the Lord will be a day where either we will receive vengeance for our own sin or Christ will have suffered for our sin. So Christian, how are you living for God? How are you living for God today? What is holding you back from honoring him and making him visible in your life? Are you in affliction? Are you in pain? And texts like these remind us that we can draw closer to the person of Jesus and we can wail and we can lament and we can ask how long, O Lord, and at the same time be molded and shaped by his grace today. Because for the Christian, this life is the closest that we'll ever get to hell. And if you don't know Jesus, This life is the closest that you'll experience heaven. If you don't know Jesus, you stand condemned before God, just like all of us did at one point, based on what you have done, not what the victim you are of, but what you have done. But God has made a way for you to be free, for you to be vindicated, and for you to find forgiveness. So look to Jesus. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus. Christian, trust in Jesus. Our future glory shapes the present grace we live in today. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to yourself by your glorious grace. We were lost and you rescued us. We were in darkness and you transferred us from that kingdom into the kingdom of light. Father, we were estranged from you and you reconciled us. Father, we were under your wrath and you gave us grace. All of this has been accomplished through you sending Jesus to die in our place and for our sin. In his death and resurrection, our sin was left buried and in the grave. We have experienced freedom from our bondage 
and we await relief from our sin, the sin committed against us, and the sin around us. Empower us by your Spirit to persevere well, to grow in our maturity, in our character, and to do good for the glory of your name. Lord, we look forward to the day where we will marvel at your coming. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us when we don't trust you. Forgive us when we look more like the world. Spirit, renew our hearts. Renew our hearts with steadfastness. And give us the courage to speak, walk, and live with your grace.